So we persuaded him to have the meeting. I briefed the president before saying, okay, Bono is going to ask you to raise our planned commitment from this billion to that billion and what you should ask him and so on. And I was, as I was walking out the door, I just thought, you know, maybe he doesn't really know who Bono is. So I said, you do know who Bono is. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, musician, rock star. Yeah, yeah I know who Bono is. And as I was putting my hand on the door of the Oval Office to go get Bono, I heard the president say, he used to be married to Cher. <laughs> and I looked back at him, he had a total poker face. And to this day, I could not tell whether he was kidding or not. <laughs> Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Josh Bolton. Josh is president and CEO of the Business Roundtable, an association of CEOs of leading U.S. companies. Before joining the Business Roundtable in January 2017, Josh was managing director of Rock Creek Global Advisors, a consulting firm that he co-founded in 2011. Josh's 20 years of government service includes eight years in the White House under George W. Bush as Chief of Staff, Director of the Office of Management and the Budget, and Deputy Chief of Staff for Policy. Josh, welcome to the podcast. I was truly blessed by the opportunity to work with you in government and now really appreciate the opportunity to work with you as you lead the business roundtable. So I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Now let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Washington, DC. Your father had a long career at the CIA. Is that where your interest in government and public service came from? Talk a bit about how your career unfolded because as I recall, it had a number of twists and turns along the way. Yeah, there were, there were plenty of twists and turns, but you're right about my start. I grew up in D.C., and especially the D.C. of when I grew up, of 50 or 60 years ago, it was a one-company town. I mean, there were a few local businesses, but even Marriott was just a few restaurants at the time. So it was, it was all government, all law, all the time. And those are the people that I met that I admired, that my parents brought home to have dinner and interesting conversations. And what I really liked was that they were super interested in what they did. My dad, whom I admired greatly, although I never, literally never heard him say a word about something going on at the office, I could tell that he loved his work, that he cared deeply about the country and trying to do something good for the common good. And I thought, well, that's, uh, that's the kind of thing I'd like to be involved in. So the people that I saw that my dad brought home, whom I admired were the lawyers who had careers in and out of government. And so I decided early on, that's what I wanted to do. And my folks encouraged me. Well, I tell you, that's terrific. When very early on, you've got a good idea of what you want to do. I would like to now talk a little bit about one of the things you did along your way. So you worked for Goldman Sachs for a number of years in the 90s in the London office. 
and our paths didn't cross really until you returned to DC as a key member of the Bush administration, ultimately becoming George W. Bush's White House chief of staff, where you recruited me to come to Washington as his treasury secretary. But I'd like to start at the beginning of that. What led you to join the Bush team? And then talk a bit about what it was like working for the president. What is he like? Well, going back a little bit, I had a really good experience at Goldman Sachs. I had served in the Bush 41 administration, three out of the four years as general counsel to the U.S. trade representative, one year in the White House itself doing congressional affairs. But I was really blessed to have a chance to go to Goldman Sachs. It turned out for five years in London and had an excellent experience, but I was really a government guy working in investment banking. When I ended up in the Bush administration, I was an investment banker who ended up in government. (laughs) Truthful. I was a government guy. And as much as I enjoyed my Goldman Sachs experience, which gave me very interesting exposure to public policy issues in Europe that I had had little exposure to before, I was interested in going back to government. I wasn't anxious to do it. And on a lark, somebody called me up out of the blue and said, I'm going to be George W. Bush's campaign manager for the election that was at that time, two years away. That phone call came at the end of 1998. And so when I was next home visiting my folks in DC, I thought, well, what the heck? I'll go visit with this guy who, by the way, turned out not to become the campaign manager, but he sent me down to Austin, Texas to visit with a few folks. And I met Joe Albaugh, who was then the governor's chief of staff. I met Karen Hughes, who was his communications director, and Carl Rove, who was his political guru. I I liked all of them. And then I met Governor Bush, and I had heard that he was not super bright. And boy, was I wrong. He was very casual, really cavalier, and didn't present himself as an intellectual of any kind. But I found over the course of a conversation that was supposed to have been I think 90 minutes at the most, which lasted three or four hours. He ended up inviting me to stay for dinner. He had real friends come over for dinner. And then we all went to the Texas-Iowa basketball game. And the guy I saw, I just thought was spectacular. He was smart. He was genuine. He had a great political touch with people. And he cared about the issues in the country. And I thought, hell, you know, why not? I'd love to be with this guy. I didn't think he had a very good chance of winning the presidency. I mean, we were, we were in the midst of peace and prosperity at the time. And the, and the only thing that had really gone wrong was President Clinton's personal behavior. So I figured they're, the Democratic nominee is likely to be Al Gore. He's likely to, he has the best chance of winning the presidency. And this guy, Governor Bush, has, you know, what, maybe a one in three chance of being the Republican nominee. But I said, what the heck? I want to be associated with this guy. So I moved to Austin, Texas where I spent two of the most fun years of my life as the policy director of that campaign. Wow. You know, and to just go back, as I recall, Goldman Sachs had gone public in 1999. I was the CEO and my chief of staff said, we're going to bring this star from London who's going to come 
to the U.S. and you're going to have a top-notch public policy person here at Goldman Sachs. And then he came in one day and said, wait a minute, he's gone to work for George W. Bush. Now, that was the best thing that ever happened to the country and ever happened to me. But I said, how can he go to work for that guy who's got no chance of winning? So <laughs> really interesting. How well, if you had had the experience I had of spending a few hours with him, you would have had a, a completely different... I, I absolutely. That's, that's what happened to me. And you convinced me. So now, so I now want to go to, you know, you, you became the director of the Office of Management and the Budget in 2003. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a very important job that few people outside of D.C. understand. So, Josh, take a minute or two and explain to our listeners what OMB is. The Office of Management and Budget is an office of 500 people, almost all of them career civil servants, who operate within the complex of the White House, and they manage the budget for the entire country. They take the outline that the president wants of where his spending priorities are, and they make it work. They give the allocations to each of the departments and so on. And it's really the way, in most respects, that a president reflects his policy priorities. He does it through the budget, and he does it through the 500, in my experience, really excellent people who work at OMB. And while you were there at OMB, what I remember, Josh, is that you were making real progress. Uh, the Bush administration was making progress in reducing our national debt as a percentage of the economy. And then we got hit by the financial crisis. Well, you know, first of all, I'm proud of that because we were in a period of reasonably good economic growth, but we also had a lot going on in government, including two shooting wars going on. And so it wasn't easy maintaining some semblance of fiscal discipline. And I remember being absolutely terrified when I first got the job in 2003 that we were headed for a deficit that was approaching 40% of GDP. Now we got it turned around and we, you know, we stayed just below 40% of GDP as our debt in relation to the size of the economy. But I can't, I can't overstate how panicked I was that, oh my gosh, if we get anywhere near 50% of <laughs> the financial markets will react, our credit will go bad, interest rates will go through the roof and the economy will be ruined. And here we are today uh, with the debt to GDP ratio zooming past 100%. I mean, who, who, would have, who would have thought we would be here? And the panic when we were headed toward 50% was unwarranted. And maybe it's unwarranted today, but boy, it, it sure is not a comfortable place to be. And at some point, our policymakers need to get it under control because the trajectory is just worse and worse with the aging of our population. So, Josh, that's what I've been focused on because... You know, as you say, it's over 100% of our GDP or the size of our economy, well over $3 trillion. But it's the trajectory that alarms me because here's what I believe. You know, I think, sure, when we have a global reserve currency and an economy like the U.S. and interest rates are as low as they are, that allows us to run a higher deficit for a good while. 
particularly when interest rates are low. But the structural long-term deficit, which has to do with the aging of society and, and so on, is really ominous. And the one thing I feel quite sure about, can't tell when the time will come, but ultimately we're going to have to deal with that or it's going to be very, very painful. And it's just a huge risk. I think I couldn't agree with you more. Sitting in Washington as I, as I am today and often in close touch with the Congress, I can tell you that over the last, certainly over the last four years, there's been almost nobody willing to stand up for their principles of fiscal rectitude. Hopefully there'll be some return to that because it's all going to be fine until it's not. Now, we're in the midst of a crisis. We're in the midst of a health crisis and an economic crisis. That's the time when government should be running a huge deficit. But once we get on the other side of it, it'll be very important for policymakers to get a focus back on restraining the explosive growth in our entitlement programs. That's Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security now make up close to two-thirds of the federal budget. And in fact, it's over two-thirds if you add in interest on the federal debt. And that's the portion of the budget that's growing. It's not the parks. It's not environmental protection. It's not education. Those are becoming increasingly trivial parts of the federal budget. What we need to do is get those entitlements under control. It's politically very difficult to do. But the truth is, it is not substantively all that hard to do. We know the kind of measures that need to be taken. It means making our safety net programs somewhat less generous for middle and upper middle class and wealthy people. But we can, uh, we can afford to do that while maintaining a good safety net. We just have to have the political courage to do it. Yeah, yeah. well said. I, I remember telling someone after I'd been at Treasury for a short time that there is no low hanging fruit in Washington problems were either analytically simple, but then they were politically complex, right? And right. and some were analytically and politically complex. So you're, you're dealing with one right here with entitlement programs. It's analytically pretty simple, but it's politically very complex. And it's ultimately a matter of generational equity because it's the future of our country. It's the young people that are going to pay for, for this dereliction of duty today. But I want to move to another topic. So other than the presidency, in my judgment, there's no job in Washington that's more difficult than the White House chief of staff, where every major domestic, political, or foreign policy issue lands on your desk before it goes to the president. So I want you to talk a little bit about, because you did that job so well, I never would have been part of the Bush administration if you hadn't been in that job. I wouldn't have had the confidence to come. And uh, you recruited me, so I watched you do it. But talk about what that job entails and what's going to be on Ron Klain's desk come January 21st, and what advice would you give him? So there's a lot in this, but I just want people to understand this uh, chief of staff's job. When President Bush approached me in early 2006 to become chief of staff, we still had three years left in the administration. I had been the budget director for almost three years at that point. And I remember, uh, and of course I accepted the role, and I remember somebody coming up to me and going, oh my God, you've been deputy chief of staff for two years. You were 
budget director for three years, you know, how can you take on, uh, Hank, what you just described as the hardest job or one of the hardest jobs in government? And my only thought was, oh, thank goodness, I don't have to be the budget director anymore. <laughs> but here's why, which is that, yeah, chief of staff is a hard job, but you have the luxury of focusing on what's important to the president and focusing on what's important to managing the White House and the administration. In the budget job, I had a full inbox every day of every issue with, it, with respect to every portfolio in government. And I went home every day feeling like, boy, I don't know enough to make the decisions that I'm being asked to make. That's true in every government job. You, you have to make decisions, um, as Henry Kissinger said, based on insufficient information. That's, that's the essence of senior government service, but it's especially true at OMB. It is less true in the chief of staff's role. And I mention all that because that's what I think the secret to the chief of staff job is, is to maintain some focus that don't, uh, don't let the president be overrun by his inbox. A lot, a lot of stuff is in the inbox and it has to be dealt with in some way. But the chief of staff's job is to make sure that the president has both the space and the ability to focus on whatever the president's priorities are or ought to be. When the chief of staff is described as a gatekeeper, I think that's partially true, although I never viewed my job as keeping people out. I viewed my job as getting people in who really needed to see the president and whom the president needed to hear from and get them in in a way that makes it possible for the president to make good decisions. And that's what Ron Klain is going to be facing. I, th I think he's well situated to do that because he's had similar kinds of roles before. He was chief of staff to then Vice President Biden. So he knows the drill and he knows that his principal responsibility is organizing the White House and lining up the rest of the administration so that everybody's pulling in the same direction and making it possible for the president to be the best president he can be. You know, Josh, that's what you did for me. So rather than having a gatekeeper trying to limit my time, you did everything you could to make sure I built the relationship with the president and spent time alone with him or just with the two of us. Yeah, and Hank, that turned out to have a huge payoff for the country because when the financial crisis hit, there probably was no more important relationship maybe in the world than between the president and his treasury secretary. You had developed the confidence that you needed to tell him we have to do something dramatic in the next two hours and you got to trust me, it's the right thing. And had you not had that relationship, those would have been very hard decisions. And I got to tell you something, I'm, I'm a particular type of person, so it takes a while for someone to get used to me. <laughs> and, and, you, and you made sure that, that he had that opportunity over time, and you counseled me, and it, and it worked for all of us. So now I want to move to something else, because some of the most impactful work that happened over the course of the Bush presidency relates to his foreign aid work in Africa, which may have saved the lives of over a million people. And this is something you were intimately involved with, working with the president, even working with Rockstar Bono, 
managing a range of different stakeholders. Talk about what you learned from that experience. Well, uh, first of all, I'm super proud of having had a role in what we inartfully called the president's PEPFAR program, which rolls off the tongue. It stands for President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. We didn't have good marketing on it at the time, but it- uh, I never knew. I knew what it was, but I sure didn't know what that stood for. And I couldn't understand why you called it PEPFAR, but anyway, I'm glad to know. Well, and it started out as the president taking an interest in Africa, which is not typically on at the top of a president's agenda, especially when you know you had things blowing up in the Middle East. But uh, Condi Rice and Colin Powell got the president interested in the future of Africa, which uh, they persuaded him, I think correctly, is very intimately tied with the future of the planet. And uh, as he became interested, it became clear that Africa was being hit with a pandemic of AIDS that while it was, it was a dangerous thing and coming under control in this country, uh, it threatened to wipe out a whole generation in Africa and create such enormous areas of extreme poverty and desperation, really, that made it both an economic threat and a national security threat to the country. He was moved by the humanitarian crisis that was unfolding. And uh, when he was persuaded by a little-known official over at NIH named Tony Fauci that there was a way that the United States could help stem the pandemic, he said, well, we, we have to do this. And it's both a moral imperative and it's in the long range interest to the United States. He did not come to Washington to be the president who doubled foreign assistance. If you had asked him in advance, he would have said, well, I'm a, I'm a Republican. We're, we're wasting most of that money. And at best, we're just going to try to allocate the money that we've got more sensibly. But he turned out to be the president who dramatically expanded foreign assistance with, in particular, with this AIDS program, which got bipartisan support on the Hill with the help of a rock star named Bono, whom you mentioned, and it outlasted the Bush administration. So the Obama administration continued it. And if you take it up to today, Hank, it's a program that has saved probably around 20 million lives in wow. Africa and really changed the course of history on that continent. And the American taxpayer deserves the credit, and the American taxpayer probably doesn't even know it. You know, to me, that's a great story about government because, you know, there's so many jobs, maybe not quite that much or close to that much leverage, but there's so many jobs in Washington, if they're done properly, that have a huge impact. Now, after you left government, you served as uh, interim CEO of the One Campaign. That's the NGO founded by Bono, where you continue to work on Africa. You know, just quickly, what was it like working with Bono? He's the real deal. You know, he actually, along with the president and Tony Fauci, deserves a huge share of credit for the AIDS program that has saved so many millions of lives in Africa, because he is by far the best lobbyist I ever saw walk through the doors of the West Wing. He just has a knack. He's, he's got a charisma. Uh, George W. Bush really didn't have any idea who he was, so he wasn't 
really impressed that this guy was, you know, the leader of arguably the best live rock band in the history of rock and roll. I mean, maybe there's some dispute about it, but Bush didn't care about that. In fact, I remember when I, Condi Rice and I, it took us several weeks to persuade President Bush to do a meeting with Bono, which was partly for Bono to persuade him to spend more on AIDS and partly for Bush to persuade Bono that they needed to stand side by side in announcing this program so that we would get the democratic support that we needed. Because I mean, bear in mind that this is all happening while Iraq and Afghanistan are unfolding. So it's not a period in which people on the left were thinking very warmly of President Bush. So we persuaded him to have the meeting. I briefed the president before saying, okay, Bono is going to ask you to raise our planned commitment from this billion to that billion and what you should ask him and so on. And it was a standard pre-brief. And I was, as I was walking out the door, I just thought, you know, maybe he doesn't really know who Bono is. So I said, you do know who Bono is. And he said, yeah, 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 you know, musician, rock star. Yeah, yeah, I know who Bono is. And as I was putting my hand on the door of the Oval Office to go get Bono, I heard the president say, he used to be married to Cher. <laughs> and I looked back at him. He had a total poker face. And to this day, I could not tell whether he was kidding or not. <laughs> Bono walked in. He's wearing the black, you know, the all black suit, no necktie, which was quite a violation at the time. He's got the earrings. He's got the shades on. And he walked in with a gift for the president, which is quite common to, you know, have something for the president. But it was the it was the cleverest gift that anybody could have in his situation could have brought. He brought an Irish Bible and they spent the first 15 minutes of their conversation not talking about AIDS or politics or anything. They talked about faith. And that was the most effective lobbyist I've, I've ever seen doing his work. And they formed a bond that helped make the PEPFAR program the great success that it's been. Well, I tell you, I've had the same experience. You sicked him on me, and he's been incredibly effective. I will tell you that. He is a real deal. So I'd like to go now to the business roundtable, which you lead. And you work with a group of the most important U.S. companies in the world. Describe the business roundtable and what the group aims to accomplish. Business Roundtable is a trade association of the CEOs of some of America's largest and most important companies. We're now at membership above 200, I'm proud to say. And they come together to share experience, to share best practice, but principally to have the Business Roundtable advocate on their behalf for a strong economy. Now, it's not advocacy for parochial interests. There are trade associations for every industry that exists in the United States, and they advocate for the parochial interests. The CEOs come together here to advocate on behalf of a strong economy and a strong country. And so it makes it a very luxurious place to be because they're applying their own personal best efforts toward a cause that everybody ought to believe in. And the company is not the member of the business roundtable. The CEO is the member. And that's what really gives us our potency, which is that when the business roundtable speaks, policymakers know that they're hearing from the CEOs personally. 
I want to just put that in perspective because one of the things that shocked and disillusioned me a little bit, and it was counterproductive when I was at Treasury, was if you would talk about an issue like tax reform, when I really believed there needed to be corporate tax reform. And so at 100,000 feet, everybody agreed. But then it was a food fight as different companies got in, and everybody arguing for their company or their industry, you know, favorite loophole or preference that they thought was essential. And it became very confusing and made them ineffective when they went up to the hill. But the business roundtable is just totally different. And it's policy and it's CEOs, and that's a big difference. Now, the BRT made waves last year when it redefined its decades-old policy statement that defined a corporation's principal purpose as maximizing shareholder value. So how should we view the purpose of a corporation today, Josh? You're right, Hank. It was last year, a year ago, August, that we put out a new statement on the purpose of a corporation. When I arrived at the Business Roundtable four years ago, I wasn't even aware we had such a thing, but the Roundtable has kept an evergreen set of corporate governance principles on its books. And in the mid-90s, the portion on the purpose of a corporation was written to state, I'm paraphrasing, but not really oversimplifying, that the purpose of a corporation is to maximize shareholder value. As I got into my work here, it became more and more clear that although all of the leaders who come together at the business roundtable focus heavily on maximizing shareholder value, that they view their jobs through a broader lens. And many of the CEOs told me when I informed them of that statement, they said, well, yeah, shareholder value is, is of course critical, but that's not the way I run my company every day. I run my company to promote the interests of all of our stakeholders, of whom the shareholders are one, but not the only one. So uh, the new statement that we put out in August of last year says that the purpose of a corporation is to support all of the corporation's major stakeholders. That's customers, employees, suppliers, the communities in which they operate, and the shareholders. And if you take care of the first four properly, then you're taking care of the long-term shareholder. So we've engendered a lot of debate, plenty of support, but also some criticism. And the criticism, I think, really misses a lot of the point, which is that in making this new statement, the CEOs didn't denigrate the shareholder. They're merely saying that I do all of these things in support of the long-term shareholder. Now, maybe they're denigrating a shareholder, but it's the short-term shareholder that they're denigrating. Yeah, I think that's the key point. Anybody that's running a business, I think for a long time, they should have been running it for the long-term. And you know, you're not going to succeed in the long-term to the extent you might if you don't take care of your customers and all of the other stakeholders. So there's also been a fairly rapid and significant shift in the way that corporate America thinks and talks about climate change and sustainability. From your vantage point, what's driving this and what, what are your members saying today? Hank, we put out a, uh, a new statement on climate policy just a few months ago. It was supposed to be out early in the year, but got bumped by the pandemic. But it's a statement that took a good half to three quarters of a year to work out. But what we got 
a broad consensus on among the 200 members of BRT is not just that climate is real and that it's at least partly man-made, but also that there are important government policies that need to be applied urgently to address the challenge of climate. And we got our CEOs to agree that from the policy side, that should be implemented through putting a price on carbon. Now, we don't, we don't have unanimous agreement by any means on how you put a price on carbon, but for the major companies where you know, we've got everything from oil companies to Apple and Cisco in our membership, for all of them to come together on that principle, I think is very important and a strong signal to policymakers to push in the direction of creating a price mechanism. Now you asked, why are they doing it? I think there are a lot of reasons. One is they're genuinely worried about climate and what climate will do to this economy, but they're also being pushed by really each of those stakeholders that I just mentioned perhaps most importantly by their employees is, is the most interesting. That the employees of major American corporations are demanding responsibility by the employer on climate and good luck hiring a young engineer for your company if you don't have a good policy on climate. Yeah, and I would also add that I think many CEOs believe putting a price on carbon is a more effective way to do it than through regulation. Oh, yeah. That, um, I mean, that, there you'll find very widespread agreement among the members of the Business Roundtable that doing comprehensive legislation for the country where there's, you know, they can, they know what the price is and they know how to invest and how to plan for the future. That is far superior to the one-off surprise often that comes from regulation. Yep. And the idea that somehow other companies are going to be able to do everything they need to do without government policy, they also understand that's a fallacy. Now, I'd like to go to another hot button issue for American business, which has been China policy. You and I talk about this a lot. So how do you view the China challenge and how do we keep American firms competitive given this challenge? And how do you think Biden should adjust America's policy toward China. There's a lot in that. They could spend hours on that, but just summarize it, what we need to do to keep American companies competitive and what you think Biden's got to do differently. Well, let me answer from my vantage point at the business roundtable, where I've now have several years of experience of watching our membership try to shape and then react to government policy on China. You know, I should say that the, the roundtable membership has been supportive of many of the economic policies of the Trump administration, particularly on taxation and regulation. But we've been in sharp tension with the administration many times on trade policy. Um, immigration is the other one that we've been in tension with the most on, but most frequently on trade policy. And China is the big issue in trade policy. And on that, I would have to say that most of the members of the business roundtable would agree with the Trump administration's identification of the problem, that the China that we hoped would be emerging and saw emerging Hank, in the, in the years when you, were, you and I were in government service, hasn't materialized. It's a much more statist, 
less market-oriented regime than I think any of us expected at the time that we supported entry of China into the World Trade Organization. And so we have almost every company that does business either in China or competes with China, which is most major American companies at this point, has found that they have challenges with market access in China. They have challenges with intellectual property protection. They have challenges with subsidization of both state-owned and targeted industries, all of which are distorting the world trading system in a way that's to the detriment in the long run of all of us. So the members of the Business Roundtable did not resist the identification of the problem that the Trump administration came up with. They did object to much many of the tactics, which we thought were unnecessarily confrontational. And there was political benefit to the president in having dramatic confrontations with China, but they produced a lot of counterproductive activity on both sides, including the imposition of tariffs on both sides, the, really the first real major trade war in decades around the world. So what they are hoping to see from a Biden administration, and I bet they will see, is an administration that takes all of those problems seriously but tries to lower the temperature and try to move China back on a path of structural reform that will make it a more responsible player in the global trading environment. There was a really good piece in the Wall Street Journal published by one of the two people having this conversation a couple of days ago, which said that what the Biden administration ought to be heading for is competition without unnecessary confrontation and that's where I think the major CEOs of America would like to see us be. Let's make it possible to compete effectively with China without creating unnecessary confrontation. Yep. I obviously agree with that. And I think the other thing is, even if you don't believe we can get China to change many of their policies, we need to be smarter about how we deal with them. Because I believe that a number of the Trump administration's tactics were not only doomed to fail, but they were they hurt the United States in attempting to punish China, they were hurting our competitiveness. Yeah, Hank, I completely agree with you. And I thought Eric Schmidt, the former former head of Google, had a good way of describing what a lot of the effects of those policies were, which is that we're just trying to lose slowly. And in effect, that's what a lot of the, the Trump efforts to try to punish China were, which is that they slow them down a bit, but in the long run, hurt us more. What that leads to, I think, is, is something that, uh, that I'm hopeful that the Biden administration will very much take to heart. Certainly their rhetoric has, which is that the key to competing with China is outcompete them. Put the U.S. economy on kind of footing that will make us successful and spend less of our time counterproductively trying to damage the Chinese economy. Amen. Now, I'm going to lighten this up a bit. You spent a lot of your time cooped up inside because of the pandemic. So I assume you've had some time to practice your bass guitar. Any other hobbies you picked up during uh, quarantine? How do you relax? Well, and bass guitar is what I play in a band. Regular guitar is what I play for myself. And so I've returned to some of that. I haven't tried to get the band back together. So remind me, what did you call your band? 
Well, when I was the budget director, the band was called Deficit Attention Disorder. <laughs> uh, but after I became chief of staff, we were the Compassionates. Okay. Okay. Anyway, but no, uh, with hobbies, I find I have, with the pandemic, I have a really rich life at home because, Hank, as you know, I've come to family life very late in life, you know, not until my 60s, and I've got small kids at home, and people with small kids during a pandemic don't need a lot of hobbies. You know, you've had a remarkable career, and I'd like you to reflect on it a bit. What are you most proud of? And any advice you would give to young people today who are looking to navigate their careers in the midst of this pandemic? Well, I'm proud of a lot of things in my government service, including the small role I played in the PEPFAR program that we talked about, the various roles I've played in government. In the bigger picture, I'm proud that I've served alongside people who, as I hope I did, approach the job with integrity that tried every day to do their best for the country, regardless of the cost to them in time, money, or political advantage. And so that really, that really means the most to me. It may be that my most important contribution in government, Hank, we've already touched on, and that is that the people I helped bring into government, not least you, that may have been my most important contribution to stemming the financial crisis was, I have to say, the admirable persistence I showed in recruiting you who said no twice before you finally said yes to join government. But I think particularly as, as a chief of staff, but in all of the leadership positions I've had in government, the best things I've often been able to do have been the people that I've been able to persuade to join me in government service. Well, I tell you, I'm sure indebted to you. Now, I want to go to the last question. You are one of the most effective managers I've worked with, because it's never about you, it's about the mission. Can you give our listeners a few of the Bolton management principles? Yeah, one I picked up from President Bush that I have not always successfully emulated was be on time. That should never be underestimated. Some of the other things that I've tried to follow during the course of the various management roles I've had, maybe the most important relates to what we just talked about in terms of people. And that is that as a manager, the time you spend trying to find the best people to put on a job is rarely time wasted. In my experience, it's been the most valuable time I've spent in government is finding the right people to put into the right job and then empower them. Make sure they have the capability and the authority to do the job you're asking them to do, and then hold them accountable. Ask them all the tough questions and make sure you know enough about what they're doing to challenge them properly. Don't be shy about it. And uh, if they're on the right track, uh, support them. If they're on the wrong track, and this is much more true, I think, in the White House than anywhere else, you got to find them another place to be because the White House is way too important for sentimentality. And you, you just have to be brutal about making sure you got the right people in the right positions. You know, you sure did that. And, you know, that's always been my one of my big principles that I've seen all sorts of successful leaders and managers and some that aren't so successful. And they've got different skill sets. But one thing they all need to have is have the right people in the right jobs surrounding them. And you sure worked on that. 
Well, Josh, this has been terrific today. And, you know, you've got a big job in front of you because I do believe that now it's going to be as important as it ever has been to have, you know, our business leaders weigh in on government policy because this economic recovery is going to be really important, how we go about doing it, how we go about fixing our economy and doing that in a way in which we deal with some of these issues like inequality, which are huge issues as a vulnerable get hit real hard, but do it in a way where we continue to keep the best aspects of our system of capitalism. So I really appreciate the work you're doing at the Business Roundtable. Well, thank you, Hank. I feel blessed to be in this role at this time with such good leaders across so many businesses who, in fact, do want to lean in on economic growth issues. They, they really want to lean in on racial equity issues. They really want to lean in on making sure capitalism works for everybody in our society. And the good news is that uh, by all signs so far, the Biden administration is keen not just to hear from those business leaders, but to partner with them. That's great. Thank you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.